This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. My name is Dr. Susan Lynch. I'm a professor of medicine. I have the pleasure of serving as the director of the Benioff Center for Microbiome Medicine and your moderator for tonight's session. So with that, it gives me immense pleasure to introduce um, Dr. Tiffany Sharshmith, our speaker for tonight. Tiffany's an all-rounder. She's a dermatologist, a microbiologist, and an immunologist, and she currently serves as Associate Professor of Dermatology here at UCSF. She's heavily invested in research, dedicating about 80% of her efforts to research and the remaining time taking care of patients with severe inflammatory skin diseases. The central focus of her research is to investigate the cellular and molecular mechanisms that mediate interactions between bacteria and the developing immune response. And she's got her long-term goal of developing new therapeutic approaches based on this knowledge. Uh, We're very proud of the fact that Tiffany is homegrown. She got her uh, MD here at UCSF. And as you'll see from the quality of the work that she presents later today, it's it's really unsurprising that she's received several awards for her work, not least a Young Investigator Award from the American Academy of Dermatology and the Director's New Innovator Award from the National Institutes of Health. So tonight, um, Tiffany will speak about um, microbes on the skin and how they modulate immunity. And the title of her talk is The Microbes Upon Us, How the Cutaneous Microbiome Promotes Skin Health. Tiffany. Thank you so much, Sue, for the introduction, and thank you all for joining us this evening. Well, it's a pleasure to to participate in the the mini med school series. Um, As as Sue mentioned, a a native UCSF former med student myself, as was my brother. Tonight, we're going to be talking about something a little different. Um, As Dr. Lentz mentioned, um, I really have an immense focus and interest on understanding these bacteria in particular that live um, on our skin and in our skin. I'm so invested and interested in fact that um, this picture on this slide is something that I myself doctored up. I'm the mom of um, three kids. um, And this is one of um, my my oldest son, my middle son, who um, when I was on maternity leave, we were putting out a paper that looked at the role of skin microbes in early life skin health. And so the poor kid, this was his his, uh, entry to the world on the cover of a medical journal um, with the microbes that I kind of saw that really are not visible, but really present on our skin from these very earliest of life. So I can't say I could promise, you know, the immediate, you know, next day actionable takeaways that one might get from a bone health kind of lecture, but um, you know, the promise of what hopefully we'll talk about today is, is something that you can take with you and, and think about and, and at the very least share uh, across the dinner table um, or at a dinner party, sort of some of the, the really interesting things we're learning about our skin microbiome and, and where this field might go in coming years. So um, I just have a few disclosures. These are um, a com- couple of um, startup and small companies I'm involved with, and I won't be talking about anything that they're developing tonight. They all are of interest in developing skin uh, microbiome therapeutics. So again, just sort of speaks to the promise and the sort of emergence of this area in the therapeutic realm. And so what I'd love to introduce you to over the course of the next hour is to to dive a little bit into skin physiology, because I know that this lecture um, series has talked a lot about the microbiome, um, but probably most centrally around the gut microbiome. And the skin is different. It's another barrier tissue that we are both, you know, both immediately familiar with because we look at it every day. But at the same time, there's a lot of nuances there. 
And I want to explain a little bit about how that physiology and function of the skin um, is intertwined with the skin microbes and the skin microbiome that live upon it. We'll learn about what are the factors, um, the kind of shape composition of the skin microbiome. As you can imagine, it's not necessarily the gut. Other things are important on the skin. And as the title of the talk alluded, I wanna focus a lot on what we're starting to understand about the role of these skin bacteria in promoting our skin's health. This is something that we're really interested in trying to understand more deeply so that we can leverage that more therapeutically. And then the flip side of that, of course, is when this relationship is not a good one and how um, in certain instances, the microbiome can be uh, friend more than foe and contribute to diseases that we see in the clinic and how we might try and flip that relationship back around to be a good one. So skin is a, a site of really close interactions between um, our skin bacteria and our skin immune system. And this concept of our skin as simultaneously a very rich microbiological organ and a rich immunological organ has been something that's just fascinated me through my training, both in medical school and then as a scientist. One thing that might help you sort of impress upon this uh, as a fact for you is that, you know, on our skin, we have in each square centimeter over a million bacterial cells. So that's a lot. That's, you know, just in that small little area. And what we don't see is that the skin itself under the surface is really rich immunologically. We have an equal number, in fact, of over a million immune cells per square centimeter of our skin. That's actually, um, you know, people have done the math and there's more immune cells in our skin than in our blood, circulated in our blood. So if you think about how many immune cells we can, whenever we test our immune system, we're always looking at the blood, but there's that many more uh, in our skin, in fact. And what we've come to, to understand and what I'll tell a little you a bit, a bit more today is that these skin bacteria, these commensal so-called healthy bacteria, and these immune cells in our skin live not only in close proximity to one another, but actually in continual dialogue. We sense their presence, and the fact that we sense their presence is really a good thing, and they in turn are, are helping to promote the skin health overall. The skin microbiome, just like the gut microbiome, is a really a little bit of an unique unique individual signature on each person. And I wanted to spend a minute sort of looking at this diagram here, because I'll show versions of it throughout the talk and just sort of explain to you what I'm showing you and what that means in terms of the composition or, or structure of a microbiome. So this is an example of four healthy individuals. Um, each of these bars represents one of these individuals. And these were healthy individuals that were swabbed on the surface of their skin. The nice thing about the skin microbiome is you can just literally swab it and send that to sequencing to understand the microbes that are there and their functions. And these individuals happen to be sampled for this, um, this experiment at, on their heel skin, so on the back of their foot. And what this bar represents is essentially a, a zero to a hundred, you know, stacked bar graph of all the different types of bacteria that make up that microbiome. We don't need to focus, and we really won't focus today too much on the names of those bacteria, but we can sort of identify which ones are shared across these individuals based on the color of the bacteria. So for example, bacteria one, we have this person on the right that is 95% of their bacteria being this one type of bacteria, whereas the people on the left, maybe about half, and individual number three, only about 12%, and so on for bacteria number two. So this is all heel skin. Um, and for healthy individuals, not anyone with athlete's foot or something that's really skewing their microbiome. And so this gives you a sense that each of us really is individual when it comes to our skin microbiome. And that's something that is important and how we can think about maybe this is a, something to test and sample 
when it comes to skin health or signatures of health or disease and also therapies, how individualized maybe some of those might need to be. Now, when I first started studying the skin microbiome, this, you know, is a field that's maybe a decade, I'd say, behind the gut microbiome. That was sort of an obvious place to start searching and understanding more about our body's bacteria and the skin has a lot and an equally diverse microbiome. But some of the first comments I got when I said I was going to study the microbiome of the skin were sort of to the effect of, why would you do that? Isn't it changed every day? And so I'm, I'm sure, especially over the last two years, we do all lots of hand washing. We're lucky we maybe go on vacation or get to a pool and exercise, take showers, have, you know, furried friends that, you know, interrupt our, our day with, with loving kisses. And all these things happen to us, you know, multiple times a day in different forms, at least especially in our hands or our arms, we touch other people or other things in our environment. And so it might seem, you know, compared to the very protected microbiomes of the gut or, or maybe the longer other mucosal surfaces that our skin microbiome might be something that's very transient, that might be there one day, but change the next. And while certainly all these things that we do to our skin and put on our skin can influence its microbiome with the composition, what we've come to understand is that in fact, the individual skin microbiome is quite stable. And this sort of speaks to that individual microbiome that we kind of keep and keep with us over time. So this was a study that looked um, at this and um, they looked at this over a, a period of about little over a year. So we haven't necessarily studied the skin microbiome over 10 years and that might change. And we'll talk about how things like age might contribute to its change. But what we can see here is three different people all now again at the same site. And we can see, just like I said before, that their microbiomes are quite different. But the three bars underneath each individual this time are now three different time intervals at which they were sampled. So they did this on day one, they came back and performed the same exact sampling a month later, and eventually a year later. And as you can see, there's certainly some changes, you know, a little more of, you know, one type of microbe than another. But over this period, clearly an individual's microbiome is most similar to their own microbiome than to their partner, to their neighbor, to someone else in the study. And so this really suggests that there's something, some very sort of sustained relationship between the host and the microbe um, that makes this a very stable relationship. And that might be partly an immune relationship that we'll talk about later. But another thing this makes us realize is that our skin isn't a flat surface and that when we do wash our skin and do all these things to the surface of our skin, yes, we disrupt um, these communities of microbes that live on the skin surface up here. And we might, you know, remove some of our dead skin cells and with them might shed some of the bacteria. A lot of them remain deep and intact in that skin, but these other sort of very three-dimensional aspects of our skin that are already really unique to its structure and function, like hair shafts, sebaceous glands that kind of give, you know, the the, the oil to our, our skin on our face or our back and sweat glands, these are actually all little niches that are deep in the skin that house our microbiome. So while we think of this as a very external surface, there's actually very protected areas in our skin and it's three-dimensional shape that are little areas for the microbiome to kind of replenish itself. And so we think that um, while the microbes that specialize in living in the sweat glands or in the hair follicles do differ a little bit from those on the surface by nature of the fact that one is up out in the open oxygen and one is deep within a hair follicle, um, there's enough cross, you know, shared composition here that even if we significantly deplete for a, you know, a period of hours after bathing or something, the surface microbiome, there's bacteria sort of just below the surface there that are ready to sort of, you know, uh, proliferate to, to enumerate themselves and to replenish the skin surface. 
So this already gives you a little bit of a sense of the complexity of the microbiome, both its three-dimensionality within the tissue. So we've talked a little bit about um, the uniqueness of the skin microbiome to individuals and the fact that it's stable. So what really determines the microbiome's composition? I think some things are kind of obvious, right? Where this is not the easiest place to live compared to if I was a microbe, I'd probably choose the gut. I get fed every day, you know, lots of different things. On the skin, you have a very acidic skin surface. You have a dry skin surface. You again, have all these onslaughts. So it's kind of a hard place to live. And there's really robust species that take up residence here. But I wanna share a little bit more about how the different microbes are um, sort of curated for the skin microbiome. And so I'd say the number one factor and one of the, the really important things I want you to take away from today is that skin body site is really important. Um, we think about sort of a body microbiome as the microbiome unique to that one area of the body and the skin having its own microbiome and the gut and the lung and the mouth. Um, but when we look at the skin microbiome, it within itself has some of the biggest diversity. Um, and we do know that within the, the gut microbiome, you know, something that's close to the stomach, very versus very distal in the intestine might differ a lot based on the types of substrates and foods those microbes have. But what we're looking at here is sort of a, a schematic of a person. And this was um, a study done now um, over a decade ago. Um, and this is actually the lab that I, that I trained in. And I was in this lab as they were starting this study. So this is sort of where I first caught the microbiome bug. And this was during a, a year when I was a medical student at UCSF. And we were encouraged as medical students to take a year and explore other, other interests. And so this is, this is what set my course. Um, but this really nice study was really at the start of the skin microbiome field. And they wanted to look and see how the skin microbiome might change based on its location. And so as opposed to these bar graphs, we're now kind of looking at circle graphs, but the same relationship holds that a bacteria of a certain orange color, for example, is similar across different sites here and the same for the blue. And all these different colors represent different types of bacteria. And so already you can kind of piece out that there's groups of circles here that look kind of similar um, to each other, but others that look dramatically different. And we'll go into this a little bit further. And some of this might, now that I'm saying it, you know, sound somewhat intuitive, right? Um, we think of our skin being our skin, but if you think about the way you take care of your skin across your body, um, there's very, very different types of regimens you might think about. You know, we have the skin on our face, which we might need to wash on a more daily basis. Otherwise it gets a little greasy. The skin on our elbows, which we might need to moisturize a little bit unless it gets a little dry and cracked. And certainly our underarms or other creased areas that are quite moist, we need to dry and think about airing out and these sorts of things. And so some of this intuitiveness is really, um, when we get down to the chemical level, really speaking to a great complexity in terms of what is the environment of, of the skin. And the bacteria see this too, right? Picking out, you know, you're your, putting your house on your elbow would be a very different kind of environment than putting it on your underarm or your cheek. And so the types of bacteria that are likely to choose these sites and set up shop there are likewise very different, very specialized in different things. So the way that we classify these sort of three main types of skin body sites is the following. Um, sebaceous sites are ones that do have these sebaceous glands. So our face is one, our forehead, our chest, our back. Um, these are sort of those greasy sites that when we're teenagers get acne. Dry sites are, you know, an extreme example is the elbow or the heel, but other sort of extensor sites that, you know, aren't super moist, like our extensor arms, or maybe our legs would be dry sites. And then our bodily creases would be these moist sites. And so 
this is what that looks like kind of more at the skin anatomy level. Um, so these sebaceous sites, like I mentioned, have um, often a lot of hair follicles. Our scalp would also be a sebaceous site. So that's all that kind of grease that you're, you know, washing out of your hair every couple of days. So these sebaceous glands that come off our hair follicles put all sorts of different kinds of fats and fatty acids onto the surface of our skin. And that's a really important part of what they do to coat the hair surface and to, um, and to, to lubricate the skin. And these um, also, these sites often have a lot of sweat glands, which have other things um, that they contribute in some salt. So the palm is an example or the elbow, like we said, of a dry site. Often these dry sites tend to have a thicker stratum corneum, um, which is this dry sort of dead layer, kind of that white scale that you might kind of brush off when your skin's really dry or exfoliate. And this means that there's a lot less fats. There's a lot more sort of just dead proteinaceous component, dead proteins from the cells. And sometimes there's a lot of sweat, sweat glands in some of these areas, like for example, our palms or our, our heels. And then our moist sites have um, a mix of these different components, but often obviously they're closed or occluded. They're not as open to the environment and they have a lot of sweat, which has a lot of salt. And so this gives us a really different composition of the types of, of um, microbes that live here. So sebaceous sites um, tend to have a lot of fat loving bacteria. They're guys that just can't get enough of that grease on our face. And they really have specialized to use that as their energy sources. Um, and these also are ones that tend to like to live deep in hair follicles because we have a lot of pores and that kind of thing on these sebaceous sites. And those are types of bacteria called cutie bacterium or carini bacterium. Now, dry sites um, have a mix, as you can see. I mean, these are sites that are sort of, you know, in, often uh, interacting, like we said, and more extensor. So having more contact with different parts of the environment. So they're a little bit less dominated by one microbe sometimes. Um, and they have a mix of bacteria um, that can kind of be, I'd say, you know, jacks of all trades. They're, they're able, especially to, to live on some of those areas that are not so moist, don't have as much um, great substrate to live. And then bacteria in our moist sites um, tend to be, again, you know, to need moisture, but to also be able to deal sometimes with very high salt contents, which sometimes is um, present in our sweat. So they are, um, you know, very, very different as well. Just to sort of go back to this question of, of similarity across microbiomes. So I, I showed you an example of how different each person's microbiome is, and that's reflected here with, you know, 10 different people represented at these three different types of sites. And you can see how different they are. And I kind of gave you just an example of three from the start to show you that diversity. But now if you look across these individuals at these different body sites, you get to see a different level and see that actually, while we have read individually in our microbiome, some of these, you know, the importance of this body niche and the microenvironment of that skin site is so strong that it does dominate over that individual's microbiome. So immediately from these 10 different individuals, I could kind of tell you blinded you know, just based on the colors of the bars, which one was most likely to be a sebaceous facial sample versus a moist belly button sample. So that's how important this, this sort of body site niche is for, for shaping it. Now, another thing that's really important um, in shaping the microbiome is the age of the individual. And this is something we need to understand more about, especially sort of over the course of adulthood, because a lot of our studies have sort of uh, focused thus far kind of on young, healthy adults when we study the skin microbiome, kind of, you know, between age 20 and 40. But I do want to speak a little bit about the sort of organization and growth and of the skin microbiome early in life and how dynamic that is. 
So this gives us an example of, of one site. This happens to be a sebaceous site. Um, and if we're sort of using the same way to read these samples, you can sort of see already the evolution that's happening. Um, uh, you know, this is not the same individual that was sampled by age, probably the same individual from age zero months to 12 months, but the rest of these are sort of shared over different studies, but averaged over many individuals. And you can see already that these sort of infant microbiome samples, even though on the very same site as these adult samples look very different. There's a flip-flop between the pit purple and the blue here of a total flip in the microbiome. And there's also a lot of change over this first year of life, more than we saw in those adults that were sampled over a year of life. And that's because there's a lot going on uh, in the infant, in infant skin, right? We have maternal hormones that are kind of coming and going just based on kind of time postpartum or whether there's breastfeeding and that can kind of change some of the, the hormonal um, activity of sebum. And, you know, this is also a microbiome that's kind of learning to, to figure itself out. All these microbes have to live uh, in equilibrium and figure out who's fighting for what food. And so part of this change could also be because this microbiome is kind of, you know, getting its sea legs in terms of who's going to figure out, you know, who's going to dominate what niche. But where we see this really start to change is in puberty. So Tanner staging is sort of a way to split down the many subtle changes that happen over about two years in pubescent, um, pubescent children. And um, really what happens between Tanner one to three and Tanner four to five is a big hormonal shift in the, the types of uh, hormones that are made. And these are things that change a lot, as we all recall from teenagehood, you know, the way our skin uh, behaves in terms of how oily it is, you know, probably never thought about washing our face. And in high school, we're like, what is this? We have to do this all of a sudden. And that the microbes sense that as well. Um, and so what's happening here, these, this is an example of a sebaceous site. And so what happens at these later um, uh, adolescent and puberty stages and into adulthood is, is a dominance of the microbiome by more of these lipid loving bacteria because that, um, that fat and lipid content has increased. So this is probably the most extreme site of change, kind of the face in the back, but similar, more subtle changes can be seen on other parts of the body. And it's interesting because there is certainly um, some thought as to the types of diseases um, that relate to the microbiome that might occur in childhood. We'll talk about eczema as one of those. And one of those, that's a disease that can sometimes be driven by microbes that belong to these pink-purple classes. That disease tends to end um, as childhood finishes and acne and other things that we'll talk about do pick up and more of these purple and blue bacteria are associated with those sorts of conditions. So some of this makes an Intuitive sense, to, intuitive sense to us based on what we already know about the role of bacteria in skin health and disease. So I'd say, you know, age and site are the two main things I want you to take away, but we, we do know that there's many other sort of little things that, that affect um, certainly the amount of skin bacteria and tune, although we don't have quite as much sense um, with the granularity of what those, how they tune them. The first one I want to sort of just impress upon you is that um, our skin, you know, we, we think about taking antibiotics or putting antibiotic ointment on our skin. Our skin makes its own antibiotics, you know, that we're just adding to something it is already doing all the time. So antimicrobial peptides, peptides are small little protein fragments. And these are made all the time, both by our sort of our skin cells. These are our, our keratinocytes that make up the surface of our skin, but also by our sweat gland cells and our sebaceous cells and even our immune cells. And we can study how these um, different antimicrobial peptides can kill bacteria in a, in a bacterial plate. And we know that they have a lot of activity both against pathogens, bad bacteria we don't want to be in our skin, but also that they can 
you know, limit the growth probably of some of our healthy bacteria in a way that's good. You know, we want these bacteria around at the same time, we don't want them chewing through our whole skin. So this is kind of keeping them in check and making sure the levels don't get to be too high. And as I mentioned, our skin is also really um, a very, you know, rich and dense immune organ. We have, as I mentioned, more immune cells in our skin than in our blood. And so this is just, uh, you know, a smattering based on colors of those types of immune cells. Um, because of where these immune cells live in the skin, which is kind of deep to its surface and not right at the top, we don't think that they are the most important thing in terms of what's curating the, the bacteria composition. That's again, the site and those other things. Um, but we think they could be important and certainly again, making sure the bacteria don't go deep into where they wouldn't want to be. And because these cells, you know, do secrete things that make up to the surface, they also have some role in sort of tuning our, our skin uh, bacteria microbiome composition. So I wanna shift gears a little bit now that we've had a sense of what is really kind of uh, the role of the microbiome, uh, sorry, the composition of the microbiome into shifting, you know, why might we have evolved to, to have this microbiome in our skin? What is it doing for us that's good? So um, an obvious thing is, is that it's, it's there so other bacteria can't be, right? We, we live in a, an environment that we're all too aware of in terms of viruses and other things now that we don't wanna pick up when we're touching objects, but there's a lot of other bacteria that are more closely related to the bacteria in our skin that are also in our environment that we, we don't want to come onto our skin. And just, so just the fact that these bacteria are taking up space there, they're kind of the first occupiers and not letting other bacteria come in. So that's the, the most obvious and easy one. They also, um, just by their presence, sort of tune our skin's ability to defend itself. We'll talk more about this, but you know those little antimicrobial molecules I talked about our skin making, we know that the presence of bacteria really um, turns up their expression. So we get more of that antibiotic made if we have healthy bacteria on our skin. So it's kind of upping the ante for our healthy bacteria, but we now have more of those antibiotics again so that bad bacteria can't come in. And then the next thing that I wanna share is that it's not just our skin that's making the antibiotics, but our healthy commensal bacteria that are also making the antibiotics that protects our skin. So. There's lots of different ways to visualize this, but I wanted to show this image. This was actually a plate I did in early in my postdoc when I was uh, finished with my derm residency and trying to learn more about what our skin bacteria do. And this is a, a, a simple assay, and it's actually the same kind of assay we use sometimes in the lab when we're trying to study antibiotic resistance and understand, you know, if we culture a bacteria from a patient, which antibiotics we could use to treat it. And the way we do this is we look at um, the growth of one bacteria in sort of a lawn format. So this is a bad bacteria called Staph aureus that can cause skin abscesses and cellulitis infections that could put us in the hospital that we don't want. And then in the lab we might, or in the, the clinical lab, we might put an antibiotic here and say, okay, can we see some area where this antibiotic doesn't allow growth of this other bad bacteria? And we know then that this bacteria can be killed by that antibiotic because it's grown all over the plate, but it won't grow where this antibiotic is sort of seeping into the agar. And what we did here though, is instead of putting an antibiotic in the center, we put a healthy bacteria. This is Staph epidermidis, a bacteria that is on all of our skin, um, one that my lab studies a lot. And this is a, a feature that's shared with it, but many other um, and most other healthy skin bacteria. And that's that they make a whole range of different types of antibiotic molecules. Sometimes they can inhibit other healthy bacteria, but we know, for example, here that they can also inhibit um, you know, not just by taking up space, but directly by killing some of the bad bacteria that we wouldn't want to be on our skin. 
So our skin makes its own antibiotics, but so do the bacteria that live on our skin, the healthy microbiome. So another thing um, that I want to talk about, we just talked about how the presence of these bacteria sort of, you know, tunes up those antimicrobial peptides or sort of the first line of defense in our skin. But there's a much deeper sort of adjuvant function um, for our microbiome that seeps all the way down into all the functions of our skin immune system. So as I mentioned, we have all these immune cells in our skin and that's for good reason, right? These skin immune cells help us um, if we you know, get a cut to make sure that that doesn't get infected. They also have roles um, that we're understanding that actually help heal that cut. Wound healing is actually an inflammatory process. It's not just our skin epithelium, but our immune cells that need to help us do that. So we need these cells to function well. And there was a really nice experiment done now years ago by a group at the NIH um, that's referenced below here that took mice that were you know, totally devoid of any uh, bacteria grown under notobiotic conditions, meaning they're sterile. Um, they have no healthy bacteria in or on their body. And they challenged them with a skin, um, a skin uh, parasite actually in this instance. And the mice were super susceptible and, you know, succumbed to this parasite. And all they did was they added back one single healthy skin bacteria. It was actually that bacteria I showed you on the last slide, Staph epidermidis. And once they gave this single bacteria back to the mice, they saw that all of a sudden they could survive this challenge by the skin parasite. And that was because their immune cells all of a sudden were doing what they were supposed to. The immune cells essentially in the absence of these healthy skin bacteria were kind of lazing around and not doing all the things they're supposed to do. But once they actually had um, these bacteria, you know, as I mentioned, these, these immune cells are sensing these bacteria, they're getting molecules, they're getting cues, and all these things kind of make them better defenders of our skin barrier. So they'll make cytokines that both protect us from infection, they'll also become sort of, you know, better healers when we, when we need them to sort of repair our barrier, if we break it and we scrape our knee. We, um, this is sort of obviously clearly a very rich area of microbiome research and skin, because if we had you know, the keys and that we could decode what are those molecules that these bacteria provide our immune system with to sort of have function A or function B, obviously we'd love to deliver those in the right instances to sort of augment that part of our immune cells um, function. And so this is a very active area, both for my lab and many other labs. And suffice to say that there's a lot of complexity there, but a lot of really great biology and chemistry and sort of trying to understand um, and it's also really helping us understand our skin immune system better because we've evolved with these bacteria. You know, they didn't show up when we were fully formed organisms. We've really evolved to, to function in tandem with them. And we're learning more about how our skin immune system functions by understanding their communication with these bacteria. So these supercharged immune cells, um, now that they see the skin bacteria, are really able to promote, again, skin repair and protect against infection. So, you know, as much as we'd love to protect ourselves, um, you know, from bad bacteria. This is part of why as a new mom, I was, you know, uh, not necessarily chasing after every child with my hand sanitizer. I do that now with COVID probably <laughs> a lot more. Um, but that's because this education is really key to sort of understand and make sure that we can optimally function our immune system through all these healthy things that we encounter. Another aspect um, that is sort of, you know, we're was intuitive and I think we knew, but as you can see kind of by the date on this paper, I'm citing something that's, you know, we're getting much more granular understanding now is I talked a little bit about the immune barrier of our skin just recently, but our skin obviously first and foremost, we think of as sort of a functional barrier and it's been a great analogy has been drawn sort of as the bricks and mortar of our skin. And there's literally 
sort of little bricks, which are sort of the dead skin cells that are held together by little fatty mortar that kind of, you know, form our skin surface. And this is a really important barrier that does, as we see at the left, two things. It keeps things out that we don't want out and it keeps things that we want in. It helps regulate our body's moisture and keep water in. It keeps toxins out or maybe other parasites out we want. And so compromised skin barrier can be um, something that happens um, both in elderly life or with certain genetic conditions and put us at risk for certain, um, you know, individual skin inflammation. It's actually been shown also that in, um, in elderly individuals, as we have a more compromised skin barrier, this leads to inflammation that we can actually see at the level of blood inflammatory things. And that's because our skin is a very large barrier surface. So inflammation at this body barrier site can, can steep inwards. So one thing that we're now understanding is that commensal bacteria actually really help um, bolster this bricks and mortar, this just physical function of our skin barrier. It does just through a couple, a couple different things. A, as I mentioned, this is sort of very much a chemical barrier in terms of needing, you know, specific fats and things to make the mortar. And our bacteria, as I mentioned, kind of are chewing and not chewing literally, but processing all these things and eating it and making new molecules. And so some of these things that we need for our skin surface are made by the bacteria that live on our skin surface. And we haven't, you know, exactly figured out which are the bacterial molecules um, that help the skin barrier. But we also know that in addition to making these bricks and mortar, these bacteria can sort of just tighten the, the connections between our skin cells. And we've understand at least key receptors on our skin cells um, that are among the ways that these bacteria talk to those cells and tell them, you know, get your act together, make a good barrier. Um, and so again, we're trying to figure out if every, every bacteria has a good function for the barrier. Certainly we think there are some um, pathogenic bacteria that are not good for the barrier. They can make toxins and proteases that actually chew up the skin barrier. So in general, the bacteria are good and we're trying to sort of optimize that function for skin health. So I've talked a lot about all these things these bacteria are doing. I've talked a little bit maybe about how we prevent them from just kind of invading our skin, sort of the antimicrobial peptides in the immune system. But if we have all this sensing of the bacteria and they're not ourselves, you know, how is it that we're able to sort of have all this dialogue and immune communication and have our skin not go haywire from all this inflammation and activation of the immune cells? Because if we think about it, going back to this, um, this sort of analogy I drew at the beginning, we have these commensal bacteria, we have these immune cells, and I just told you they're talking all the time um, and they're activating these cells. And that seems like, well, it could be a good thing, but it could be a really bad thing. And how is it possible that on your or my skin or individuals, you know, lucky enough not to have skin inflammation that we sort of learn to keep the peace with these bacteria? And that's been something that my lab has been really interested in understanding. And we'd call these sort of mechanisms for keeping the peace mechanisms of immune tolerance. And immune tolerance you can think of as sort of this, you know, ability to realize, you know, we have to tolerate and get along with these things. It's okay to have an immune response, but we have to keep it in check and not let it get too much, or it might actually be bad for us. So how do we do this with our skin bacteria? I'm not going to go into great detail today, but I want to share sort of the, the pivotal highlights that we've understood thus far. And I think the main thing I want you to understand is that this is something that happens early on. Um, you know, there's a, there's a reason probably that we're watching, you know, young infants, you know, smear their face with dirt outside and expose themselves, you know, to everything around them, because there's a special window when we have the chance to kind of learn about our environment. And that includes our skin microbiome and say, this is okay. 
we're not going to, you know, have an inflammatory response to it. So this is the experiment that we did pretty simply. As I mentioned, we like to study a lot this healthy skin bacteria called Staph epidermidis. We study this in humans and on human skin, we often will use animal models to really be able to look at individual immune cells and manipulate that those immune cells in ways we can't just do with um, human patients. And so the experiment that we did was we introduced this bacteria to young mice and we looked at the response that, that those mice had in the immune system. And when these mice got that bacteria in the first few weeks of life, they had a really nice healthy response, one that was denoted by immune tolerance. They didn't have any inflammation to the bacteria. But if we waited until those you know, same exact mice, genetically identical, same bacteria, waited until they were adults and then first introduced the bacteria, all of a sudden their immune system went haywire and they had a lot of inflammation to the bacteria. They were no longer sort of reading this as an okay thing. And there's a lot of things that, that play into this, but one thing that we've learned is sort of how the immune system in skin and our body more generally changes with age. And there's something very special that is happening in those early windows uh, of life. Probably in humans, this is sometime in the first few years of life. For mice, it's shorter. It's kind of in the first few weeks of life. What you're looking at here is sort of days after a mouse was born. And we were looking at different immune cells in the tissue. And what you can see is between this first week of life and the second week of life, there is a huge jump in this one type of immune cell. And this immune cell is called a regulatory T cell. Um, this is probably the only cell type you're gonna learn about today, but regulatory T cells are kind of the good guys when it comes to our immune system. They're the peacekeepers and they do this through lots of different complex mechanisms. But what they're doing in this, in this sort of mechanism is calming down our immune system and saying, hey, you know what? This bacteria is okay. And part of that is because we actually have Treg cells that specifically recognize the commensals on our skin. They were around at the beginning when we were born and these Tregs evolve and develop in our skin and recognize the bacteria. And so they keep the peace with our bacteria throughout our life. Now, this early wave of, of Tregs into the skin was pretty abrupt. We went from about, you know, no more than 20% of a certain cell type to about 80% of a cell type in the matter of a week in the tissue. And so we were curious to, to look at this a little bit more and to really ask what drives this early Treg wave. And I'm telling you the story because the bacteria are again involved. <laughs> um, but I wanted to take it a step back and we sort of just were thinking about, okay, this is week one to two of life in a mouse, different than, in a, than a human, of course, but it's a really busy time for skin. And maybe there are a few scientists or, or former lab rats on the call, and maybe you've seen what a little mouse looks like. But for those of you who've only seen them in your basement when they're fully grown, this is what a young mouse looks like. Um, and one of the main things that happens over the first two weeks of life for a mouse is actually hair follicle formation. You know, humans are born with their hair already um, on their head or they've already shed it by the time they're born and they have, um, you know, just the baby fuzz. But mice actually develop their hair follicles over the first weeks of life. And as I mentioned before, the skin microbiome really likes living in those hair follicles. So even though as soon as that baby mouse is out of its mother's womb, there's bacteria on the skin surface, it's about a week or two into life that those bacteria can start diving down into hair follicles. And this was kind of a, a notable, co you know, sort of coincidence of events for us, because what we learned by looking at histology of the skin and looking at where immune cells live in the skin is that Tregs really love to be around hair follicles. So here's a hair follicle, a shaft of a hair follicle, and these little green dots denoted by the white arrowheads are all regulatory T cells. So we knew there was kind of this affinity for the hair follicle and it made us ask whether 
um, these hair follicles and the microbes in them were actually helping draw these bacteria in. So we asked if either the absence of hair follicles in these mice or mice with no bacteria at all um, would lead to the sort of absence and the delay in these Tregs getting there. And what we saw in both instances actually, either with no hair follicles or with no microbes that we delayed the, the Tregs into getting into the skin. And so this is the model that we were able to build that essentially bacteria coming into the hair follicle were turning on a signal, a specific molecule made by the hair follicle that was recruiting these Tregs into the tissue. So this is actually another way that our skin microbiome is helping this, um, this relationship with our bacteria early on. And this is something that isn't just in mice. Again, the timing is very different, um, but we are really interested in understanding what the early immune system looks like in human skin. This is not all work done by my lab, but this is looking again at those peacekeeping cells and what they look like over sort of the prenatal period in skin, early in life, and then into adulthood. And as you can see, they are really increasing and peaking early in life and then reducing in adulthood. So what do we know about the role of the microbiome in skin disease? I wanna just shift to this um, for the last portion of our talk. So I just wanted to revisit this question of how the microbiome in skin um, is you know, sometimes not our friend and more our foe. And probably the prototype disease for this is eczema or um, atopic dermatitis, as we call it as clinicians. And this is a disease that affects sometimes up to a quarter of healthy um, infants on and off and different sort of disease severity um, before the first two years of life. So very early on. And we've understand, understood for a long time that this is a disease that has flares and remissions. And we've already sort of appreciated clinically that when patients are in flares, sometimes that they respond to oral or topical antibiotics. But a really nice study um, several years ago really used the deep tools and sequencing of the microbiome um, to be able to really look at the microbiome level and say what exactly is happening in these patients. And so when they did this and they again sequenced their microbiome in individuals that are at baseline versus flaring with disease, they saw that they had a lot of this bacteria, Staph aureus. And this is sort of this bad actor I mentioned that in other contexts can cause skin abscesses or cellulitis. And here it's causing really bad inflammation in the, in the skin of these patients. And it's around a little bit at baseline, but it really takes over and becomes more than half usually of the microbiome of these patients during disease flares. So we have a clear target in this, um, this skin condition as to what is the bacteria we want to reduce during disease flares. And we can do that with antibiotics, but those have a lot of off-target side effects as well. And as I mentioned before, we've learned a lot more uh, in recent years about how our healthy microbiome actually is doing this for us on a daily basis and how it can make these antibiotics that can directly kill Staph aureus. I'm showing Staph hominis here, which is another healthy skin bacteria related to Staph epidermidis, but one that's actually been in clinical trials to try and therapeutically um, intervene on the microbiome uh, sort of disruption that happens in these patients with eczema. And this is one of a number of different um, approaches towards sort of a skin microbiome, microbiome therapeutic in this disease um, that I'm hoping really will transform and may not be the only thing that we give patients, but maybe as a great way that, you know, we are able to limit other things that we would otherwise treat these patients like oral antibiotics or steroids and keep them in a better microbiome state on a more continuous basis based on all we've learned about what these healthy bacteria do for us. And so this is kind of the 
you know, what these bacteria in trials are, Staph hominis and others, and they do this again through very, very different things. They make these antimicrobial peptides. They have some positive effects, as we mentioned already on our, our immune system. And then they can actually make other molecules that don't maybe kill Staph aureus, but change its function so that it can't make those toxins that are as bad um, for, the, for the skin of these patients with eczema. So this is, you know, in delivering one healthy bacteria, really a multi-pronged approach, much more sort of nuanced than would be a topical oral antibiotic to try and correct the microbiome disruption in this disease. Now, acne is something that probably we've all experienced at, at some level of severity, but is, you know, um, certainly something that we, you know, think of cosmetically now that I've, you know, seen patients with very severe acne, understand the disruptiveness um, that this can cause. And this is a disease that we long thought about as sort of a bacteria problem, right? Um, mostly in a way that's not helpful for patients, you know, sort of in, implying, okay, well, you just have to clean your skin better or do something like this. And so we've, we've learned a lot, but I think we've also learned that there's a lot of complexity to acne. And I think this is kind of the historical view of acne. This was sort of, you know, a snippet I took and it said the cause of acne is P acne. So it was kind of this idea of a one-to-one -one relationship between a disease and one bad bacteria. And kind of the bacteria was there, you know, this is, this is the, the scenario that would unfold, right? P acnes comes in, these really happy sebaceous glands that make all the sebum and the, the um, grease on our skin. All of a sudden they're attacked, they get trapped. We get a big inflammatory nodule that is a pimple, but it really is pointing all, all the fingers at piacnes as sort of like it's present and everything's going downhill from here. But when we looked with, not me specifically, but again, this field, um, you know, with microbiome tools to understand what is the microbiome of individuals with acne, you know, unlike we looked before at that staph aureus, um, you know, flare or not flare, those different sites of the body, I think you'd be hard pressed if I was to ask you to tell me which was, you know, which group was which, or if I gave you an individual, you know, um, column here to put it in either the grant, you know, the, the, the group from acne patients or samples from normal individuals. And all this orange bar, this like 80% of the skin microbiome in the face is all made up of this propionibacteria. It's now been renamed cutie bacteria, um, acnes. And this is because it's a really healthy skin commensal. Um, and, you know, there's ongoing, you know, understanding of maybe there's a couple strains of, of C acnes that are kind of more likely to predispose to, to acne vulgaris, but it seems like really, you know, it's certainly not a presence absent sort of thing. And it may not even be the amount of the bacteria. It's probably something a lot more complicated, you know, which is harder to sort of, you know, give you a quick synopsis of, but the old one is, you know, essentially that one-to-one -one acne controls inflammation. Here we're thinking it's actually maybe a lot more about how the bacteria, what it's making and how sort of the shifts in oxygen that might happen when a pore closes, you know, change this healthy bacteria kind of because all of a sudden it has a different environment turns on new systems and new things that all of a sudden are more inflammatory. So it in itself is not bad and it's contributing in other nice ways to our skin microbiome and our skin health. But when we kind of flip the switch and give it a different environment, then it makes things that are not no longer helpful. So the evolving view is unfortunately that it's complicated, um, but it does make us think about how we want to treat acne because there are companies you know, have tried to think about just how to eliminate all P acnes from the skin microbiome. And maybe, maybe that's not the right approach either, because it's also a very healthy commensal. And if we take it away, something else might come in. So I'll finish by talking a little bit about the concept of cross tissue communication. And what this image is sort of just showing is that bacteria are a good, a big part of this conversation. So I'll just talk a, a briefly about some of these things. 
So we know that skin inflammation can sort of sometimes lead to, to lung inflammation. Part of the atopic march of this eczema I talked about is that if you have really bad eczema, often you'll go on to develop asthma. And part of this we understand is because of that uh, inflammation from this bacteria, Staph aureus can actually lead to things um, that lead to later lung inflammation. There's been models of skin injury in animals that actually, when you have skin injury, you can get worse gut inflammation. So as I mentioned, the skin's a pretty big barrier. So if you have a lot of inflammation in that tissue, it's going to spill over to other parts of the animal um, and, and our, in our organism uh, ourselves as humans. And so it's, you know, it's just our skin, but it's not to be discounted, especially when much of it is inflamed. We know also that we, we've often thought of sort of the brain going to the skin to sense. Well, obviously pain sensation and its sensation comes peripherally from our skin to our brain. Um, and we know that activation of some of these nerves uh, in our skin, um, that specific toxins and things made by the microbiome can talk to them. And that's something that we need to learn a lot more. And then I'm going to just pause on this for a second, because I want to talk to you in a, in, in a minute just about how um, the gut microbiome might be leveraged uh, in treating a really bad uh, type of skin cancer. Work that our lab has just um, actually published as of today, um, I was talking with Dr. Lynch earlier, is this question, she collaborated with us on this project, is sort of the gut skin access. Like, you know, I, I get this question from patients a lot, you know, this inflammation in my skin, is it due to something in my gut? Do I have sort of gut inflammation? Is there some way I can correct that? And I have a, an honest conversation that I, I think they might be right, that we don't quite understand that fully and that there's things um, there that we need to understand more. But one specific context in which I think we've started to crack the code a little bit is a very extreme example. And I apologize, we're after dinner for, for some of the, the skin disease photos here, but inflammatory bowel disease, as I mentioned, is a really um, severe form of gut inflammation that we think is due to sort of a bad microbiome and immune system relationship there. And many of these patients will develop skin inflammation um, as part of this disease. And these different conditions, some of which are, are shown and listed here, kind of look like skin infections. And that's when we see these things, these patients in clinic, that's the number one thing we have to make sure it's not, that it's not a skin infection. Um, but mostly what we see in these disorders is sort of just healthy skin bacteria, but the immune response is making it look like it's a skin infection. So there's sort of a disconnect there with the level of threat based on the bacteria and the way the immune response is reacting to it. And so we asked the question, you're using mouse models, how does the presence of gut inflammation, this colitis sort of change the response to our healthy skin microbiome? I showed you already kind of what we think is happening in, in our normal state, where if we've seen these bacteria early in life, we have a really nice tolerogenic response where we have a lot of these peacemaker cells that kind of control our response. And what we saw is that um, in models where, where mice were given colitis or this gut inflammation, that all of a sudden we flipped the switch and the immune system was no longer happy with the skin microbiome. And part of this happened because there was more circulation of immune cells between the gut and the skin. There was more of a certain cytokine that was stimulating these pro-inflammatory cells. And in this instance, in our model, there actually was some sharing of the antigens of the individual bacteria between the skin and the gut microbiome. So while we think of these things as very separate and very different um, types of bacteria there, if there is small shared pieces, when one you know, body tissue makes a bad decision and decides it doesn't like the microbiome, then some of this can spill over to other areas. And so I think this will be a theme that we think about in microbiome science moving forward and the immune responses, how, you know, how one decision in one part of the body could sort of affect disease and inflammation elsewhere. 
So I did want to just finish with something that I think is really exciting. Um, you know, melanoma is something that when I entered residency as a dermatology resident, you know, was still, you know, the worst thing you could tell a patient, especially a young, healthy individual that, that we'd found a melanomous type of skin cancer. These are really aggressive tumors that sometimes, um, you know, look like normal moles, but can happen, you know, very young in life. And um, because they sometimes can be very aggressive, can be metastatic by the time they're found. Um, and really, this could be a death sentence for individuals for very for a very long time. And while I was a resident, there was some advances in the care. We started to understand what were the genes um, that are mutated in these cancers, and we started to use um, specific uh, therapies to try and sort of attack those genes and correct them, but the cancers would easily escape. And what really has totally transformed the way we treat patients with melanoma has also transformed many other types of treatments for cancer. And that is checkpoint blockade or, or a type of immunotherapy where we really harness the immune system. And while all these, you know, tolerance mechanism we just talked about are good, we certainly don't want to be tolerant of a tumor growing in us. And so we tweak the immune system with medications that often we will stack together to all of a sudden bring our immune system to be our best friend and to sort of attack and recognize the cancer. So if this is the proportion of people that were alive over time, back when all we had for this is not just for melanoma, but for other cancers with chemotherapy or maybe gene targeted therapy, as we've started to layer on all these immunotherapies, you know, we're getting out to great curves where we can, you know, lead to great survival rates in many of our patients, but we're not at hundred percent, right? So there's a, some patients that respond and some that don't. And sometimes we think that might be because of the tumor or the advanced stage, but other times there's about the tumor that don't seem to explain why someone would respond and someone wouldn't respond. And what that has made us or other, you know, scientists look at is the microbiome. <laughs> and if this is sort of something that is individually changing people's response to immune checkpoint blockade. And I'm really talking here about the gut microbiome. People are certainly looking at the skin microbiome in skin tumors, and maybe that is something that is also uh, contributing. But thus far, just looking at the gut microbiome of patients who don't respond um, to checkpoint blockade to immunotherapy and those that did respond, if you just transfer that gut microbiome into an animal um, and give those are the into a germ-free animal, so the only microbes those mice have, and then put them through sort of the same sort of clinical scenario that patient was going to go through. So giving them a melanoma type tumor and putting them on checkpoint blockade therapy, we can see that with the only difference here, there's no genetics that are different in the mice because they're totally identical. It's just the bacteria from the humans that is different, that we get a very different response where the tumors are much smaller in those mice that got the responsive microbiome and their immune response, which is what we're looking for here to, to get rid of the tumor is much augmented. And so this is, you know, now, um, you know, something that is, you know, into, into clinical trials as well. And the basis of, of many different companies that are starting to really dive into understanding again, how um, our immune system uh, connects to our microbiome and in some ways can be our friend, but maybe this are, these are places again, where we're thinking of trying to, to tweak the microbiome to give um, our cancer patients and our melanoma patients their best, their best response. And we're not yet at the stage, I think, where we know what are those bacteria, but it's something to keep um, your ear out on, on the horizon for. So we'll finish um, with just sort of what I'd hope you've learned and taken away, and hopefully we'll have time for some questions and discussion. 
The first is that, you know, despite these, you know, daily onslaughts for our skin and our microbiome, it's a stable, it's a stable community. These bacteria, you know, find niches like our hair follicles and other places and they replenish itself. And it's a signature that stays with us over time. And it's highly specialized by the skin site, sort of intuitively our elbow is not like our nose um, when it comes to how we treat our skin. And the microbes likewise feel like it's a very different site to live and different microbes take up residence there. Age is a major factor um, in its composition. We know it's highly dynamic and puberty is a key sort of point of transition for the way the skin microbiome looks. And we need to learn a lot more about how that further changes kind of during the course of adulthood and into aging. Um, that our skin microbiome provides a really key defense um, against skin pathogens in the form of these antimicrobial peptides that it makes. That really getting our skin microbiome and our immune education to our microbiome early is really key because it helps us establish these immune peacekeepers that really help, um, you know, set us up for success essentially with our microbiome in our skin. And that skin diseases such as eczema, but others as well can really reflect compositional changes in terms of which bacteria get there. Or in the cases of acne, maybe not so much which bacteria are changing, but how those bacteria change their function in response to disease. And again, sort of, um, you know, the, the, we'll have to come back and give this lecture in five to 10 years when we have, you know, things that we're pointing to and using in the clinic, but I'd say that there are therapeutic opportunities really abound in this area. And it's a fun time to be studying it um, and trying to think about where uh, we'll, we'll first see those, um, those things come into fruition. So with that, thanks for your attention and open to any questions we have time for. Great. Thank you so much, Tiffany. That was really great. Let's kick off with a, a question about what do we know about the skin microbiome and menstrual cycle? You know, due to hormonal changes, the microbiome may change and therefore we may produce more or less odor due to changes in the chemistry of the sweat glands. Yeah, that's a great question. And um I can conjecture, I can tell you that like the exact skin microbiome study has not been done on that yet. I think, you know, and, and hopefully it will be. Um, certainly we do know that there's a lot of hormonal shifts, um, you know, with menstrual cycles. And we see that in terms of um, things like acne changing. And so one would think that again, this, um, and I think there have been some studies that, you know, would suggest that our sebum content, which is sort of some of the hormonal and lipid content of our skin um, does change with these cycles a little bit and why we might see those flares. So if we um, extend that into thinking about sort of the buffet for our bacteria changing, if we change that a little bit, I'm sure we see small shifts. Again, I don't think it will be an overhaul every month um, kind of thing, but maybe the relative abundance of certain species might change a little bit with that. And you know, whether that's, um, you know, part of why we get flares um, for certain, you know, conditions like odor, um, or if it's the hormones themselves that are doing that. But certainly, things like body odor are definitely a, um, something that we collaborate on, um, maybe not in the best sense with our microbiome, and it's certain bacteria that are feeding on those, um, those substrates that are, are what create that. That's a great question. Yeah. And then there's another kind of almost related one about uh, what do we know about sweat glands and sexual attraction? Like, do people who are attracted to each other have similar bacteria or distinct ones? Those are great questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we're getting into the, the, the science of pheromones and these sorts of things. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, there, there certainly is, right, this, this concept of odor um, and attraction. And, and it's interesting to think about how the microbiome could change that, you know, and, and if you, if you could all of a sudden, you know, become uh, not attractive to one's partner or something, if you were to have a major microbiome shift that would, that would change that. Um, 
I, I mean, to the point we just made earlier, I think you're right that some of that odor is is us, but it's really the bacteria that we've come to evolve and our signature of our microbiome is kind of unique and kind of stable. So it probably is, you know, a little bit of just us, but also our, our greater biomass that is includes our skin or gut microbiome that contributes to that. So um, I, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's part of that equation um, in terms of how we create odor. Right. The next question relates to cosmetics and how they influence our skin microbiome. And is it actually helpful to choose cosmetic products due to your skin type? You know, I think everything we put on our skin um, does change, change. Obviously it's, it's changing again. I like thinking of it as sort of the, you know, just like the food we put in, you know, to our GI tract is really what shapes the composition there. Things that we apply to our skin and to the extent that those might be um, substrates that bacteria might feed off of, you know, or have preservatives or their own antimicrobial content, you know, could shape things, um, you know, and we, we use this to advantage sort of, you know, when we're trying to think about therapies for skin in terms of trying to put more lipid rich um, sorts of uh, things on skin for eczema, because some of those can both repair the barrier, but maybe might shift the microbiome in a good way. You know, I see a lot of cosmetic companies trying to get into this space in terms of sort of, you know, uh, soaps that are easy on your microbiome or, the, or this sort of thing. You know, I, I don't know that sort of the chemistry out there in makeups is necessarily in a very, um, you know, scientific way, necessarily pushing our microbiome in one direction or the other. But I think you're right in the context of intuitively, you know, cosmetics or at least skincare products probably um, that are trying to sort of balance if we have, you know, very sebaceously rich skin, and maybe that is, you know, helpful in some ways, um, but also maybe can go to an extreme, you know, if we're trying to bring that back by sort of leaching out some of the oils with the types of astringents or things that we would use, um, will have effects on the microbiome. Again, I don't think any of these things are going to overhaul it so much that you could do serious damage to your microbiome because that does stay with you. Um, it would take, you know, a lot of, I think, really constructed effort to kind of push it in a direction that would sort of, you know, be a, a bad decision for your skin. So I think there's a lot of resiliency too, though, even though these things will change it and change it temporarily. Again, I think over time, um, our body adapts to, to what it's sort of meant to do in some frame of the sense. We've, we've a couple of questions about the relationship between eczema and the microbiome um, and its relationship with, with bacteria, which you, you touched on. Some of these questions came in before yeah. you that in your lecture. But the, one of the questions is, you know, is it caused by anything else besides the microbiome? And could it be we're feeding bad bacteria by changing our eating habits? And if we never had it as a child, but got it as an adult, could it be linked to diet? That's a great question. Yes, it's definitely more complicated than just the microbiome. Um, early in life, one of the big things is the skin barrier. Um, and so one of the biggest genetic risks for, um, for eczema is sort of a gene involved in barrier function. And we have a study coming out on how that actually shifts um, your response to the skin microbiome. So not just the composition of the skin microbiome, but the sort of way it's our immune system senses it as part of it. I think that's a great question though. And there is this sort of fallacy out there. And I, and I sort of, you know, support in our talk that all eczema starts in infancy, but there is a great, um, a good percentage of eczema that does start in adulthood. And this is understudied in terms of, you know, okay, is this a shift in the microbiome? Um, you know, and I, I don't think the gut to skin access has necessarily in that way been sort of invoked yet as a, an hypothesis we're testing in it. But, um, if we think about our immune system, um, being educated by our, my, our microbiome at all these body sites, I mean, I, I wouldn't um, discount it either in terms of thinking about how our immune system 
um, can can be changed um, by major stressors and things like what are the bacteria in our gut? Because if we look at, um, you know, different mice and give them very extreme examples of different gut bacteria, we can shift their immune response. Um, you know, it, these are extreme examples, of course, but, you know, ways to sort of make them more prone to allergic inflammation or more prone to another type of inflammation. Um, but I don't think yet we have, you know, the solution diet that will correct that for, for individuals on a broad basis, but it's a great thing to consider and look at. Yeah, it's difficult. We've kind of touched on this in some of the earlier um, conversations as well about how difficult it is to, to capture diet at a molecular level and to really understand those interactions with the microbiome that may promote or prevent um, disease development. Um, uh, a question from Jordan who asks, you mentioned puberty and hormonal changes in skin microbiome. Do exogenous hormones such as over-the-counter products and oral topical steroids have any long-lasting effect on changes in skin microbiome or is it transient? Probably um, hormonal steroids, like steroids that would be taken for like hormone replacement therapy or sort of exogenous androgens, um, sort of testosterone, that sort of thing could have similar effects just because they are sort of processed systemically um, and, uh, you know, would contribute to sort of that sebaceous activity that is sort of, you know, feeding the microbiome in certain ways. Steroids are a great question. I mean, they aren't kind of the same sort of hormonal content. Um, you know, we think of them as sort of suppressing a lot of immune function and, and it is changing the skin uh, in that way. Probably I think they'd have less of an impact, um, but you know, we've mostly, we mostly use topical steroids obviously in the context of skin inflammation that is already often accompanied by dysbiosis, meaning shifts in the microbiome. And so it's a little hard to tease apart then the effect of improving the disease. Um, Cause actually we'll see with just ster topical steroid treatment of eczema that we see the staph aureus come down. Um, but that's probably not because of direct effect of the steroid on the staph aureus. It's because it's improving the sort of microenvironment of the skin and the, the healthy bacteria can kind of outcompete the staph aureus again. Um, oral steroids are a great, great question. Um, and obviously those could have some sort of long, you know, more subtle androgenetic effects or something over time. Um, and so while that might be less than like, um, you know, hormone replacement or sort of, um, androgens, uh, and testosterone replacement, it maybe could have subtle effects that have not yet been studied in terms of their intensity. Uh, a question from Katie, instead of trying to reproduce the molecules, the bacteria make to help with skin immune system. Can you just transplant the bacteria to the area of the skin that's needed? And you've kind of touched upon this, maybe you could expand upon it. Sort yeah. of the transplant just for skin. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I think we might see both types of approaches. Um, you know, I think one, one thing that we're trying to grapple with, um, with the skin microbiome is it's a little harder to sort of do a holistic, like for the gut microbiome, right? You can kind of sort of prep the gut like you might for a colonoscopy and really like deliver a new microbiome kind of into that sort of, you know, somewhat depleted um, niche. And uh, we don't quite do that with skin, right? As I mentioned, these hair follicles are these repositories. And so it's, it's hard to clear those space and totally replace the microbiome. Um, and so I think we will have to think about this when we think about sort of microbiome therapies for skin and, and one individual microbe might you know, meld really well into one person's microbiome, but for some reason not mesh well with another microbiome, meaning it just might not be able to kind of establish a niche there. And so that might just mean we have to continually give that microbe, <laughs> um, which is, which is fine. Um, but that those are sort of the types of questions that, that are sort of, I think, you know, getting thrown around, um, by different, um, people who are looking at this space for a therapeutic opportunity in terms of what's the way 
to, to get a therapeutic that will work for many people and have some durable effects, um, you know, that, you know, you maybe could apply less frequently than every day and that it will still have a benefit. And again, um, be, you know, not so individualized and reliant on a single, um, a single kind of one shot pony to, to maybe only approve for a certain subset of individuals. So I think that's a, it's a great approach and the way a lot of companies are taking it, because I think it is multiple molecules these bacteria make that are helpful is to sort of try first with the bacteria, but there might be some challenges there that we'll just have to see when we try and um, apply these to patients' skin and see how well they work. Another question, do you think there's a certain window of life that's crucial for establishing the skin microbiome and therefore health outcomes? And then kind of a corollary to that, could the overuse of hand sanitizer in kindergarten be harmful? I think there's a window for sort of, um, you know, establishing the relationship to the microbiome. And as we said, some of and I think these strains do come. And I didn't talk a lot about on-person evolution of skin microbes, but that's a whole another lecture we could give. And I, um, I, I led a session at a meeting last week on sort of looking at eczema and that's, that's where the whole microbiome and eczema field is going. If you look at one individual, how do their strains change? And the idea with healthy skin is that yes, you keep a lot of those same strains over time. Some do change and more so in diseases like eczema, um, but the notion that yes, probably seeding from the mom, seeding from the dad, seeding from breast milk, all these things are kind of those founder species and we can acquire new strains. It's not that it's set, but there is a window that this is kind of preferentially established. And there's probably a lot of latitude there. There's a lot of good strains one can pick up. Right. So, um, but the diversity of sort of experiences we have there, you know, could contribute to that. Um, and certainly if we think about sort of how we tolerate things, we're learning a lot more, not just about tolerating our microbiome, like I said, but tolerating food allergens. And, you know, it's changed a ton how I was advised with my first kid and avoiding all peanuts, even though I don't have an allergy to eat as much peanuts as you can, but I had my time in my third kid. Cause we do understand that this early life window for kids is really, um, one that they are most malleable in terms of their immune system and can learn to have a healthy relationship with things, um, I'm, I'm losing the, the last thread of that, that question, I think. So if you can bring uh, me back, Sue, or we can move on. <laughs> yeah. Hand sanitizer in kindergarten. Hand sanitizer. Yeah. So it's a hard one, right? I mean, I, I think, um, I, I think there are times when the pendulum has sort of swung too far, right? I mean, in terms of just it being everywhere all the time, obviously I'm a clinician, it's super appropriate. And I use it all the time. And, you know, even before COVID and clinical scenarios where I'm not trying to pass, you know, um, dangerous organisms between patients. And certainly with COVID it's, it's taken on new significance and importance. I think I, I want to have an optimistic view too, though, that that is one area of the body that we apply it to. And there's so much of a rich microbiome, other places that is getting educated through other things that it's, it's probably, um, more, you know, that's not a, a great win, but so long as we're doing other things, um, that are healthy in terms of what we're getting exposed to animals, our environment, you know, uh, you know, a lot of different sources of microbes. And I think it's more sort of the, the sterility and kind of the urban environments and things that kind of can have some of these um, sort of more profound effects than maybe these individual uh, interventions, like on one area of the skin, like hand sanitizer. It's just another kind of um, question somewhat related to this. What are the risk factors that you see with severe skin dysregulation in relationship to the microbiome? And for example, things like antimicrobial use or breastfeeding versus not in early life? Maybe a comment on risk factors for eczema. I mean, I don't think we yet know what are the risk factors that maybe drive the microbiome component, although we are seeing signatures um, 
you know, if, if, if the field has looked at infants and their skin microbiome before they even present with eczema, we can see some changes in the skin microbiome. And so it's hard to maybe disentangle from some of those genetic factors that I talked about, because one of the main genetic factors for eczema, for example, is a skin protein that could kind of change maybe a little bit the back, you know, again, the food for the bacteria in ways that are subtle, but maybe that could shift our microbiome, you know, in the wrong direction early on. So I think some of these, um, but that, that genetic risk factor probably can shift the microbiome, can shift the immune system, can have multiple sort of um, effects, which is why it's that stronger risk factor genetically for the disease. Um, I don't know, Steve, can you think of something else? I mean, you're, you're core to this early life risk for microbial things. And it, you know, we think of atopic dermatitis as especially skin, but I know Sue and I are interested in the, in the gut, um, skin connection for this and, and eczema goes on to asthma, which has a strong gut microbiome connection. So I don't yeah. know if you have other thoughts on that side. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of factors, but showing that they directly modulate the microbiome, I think is the key piece that that's missing in many of those studies. Well, we've only been yep. studying microbiome for, you know, 15 years or so. So it's still early days, but you know, we do know antimicrobials as a, as a risk factor and that they yep. drastically change the microbiome and, and even oral antimicrobials um, have a very profound effect on the skin microbiome. Some very nice um, work that Heidi yep. Kahn at the NIH has, has yep. shown. So um, there's where we can, point to uh, a risk factor having a profound effect and, and allowing for outgrowth of organisms that we know promote uh, allergic inflammation in the skin. But yeah. you know, that, that data is, is building, I think, and it's not just going to be antimicrobials. I, I do think that early life diet component is going to be a, a large component as well as of what drives kind of skin colonization through the production of metabolites from the gut microbiome, modulating the immune response and the, the colonization landscape in the skin. Yep. Um, lots of people want to know how frequently you should bathe and, and whether there's a relationship between how many times a week you bathe and the health of your skin microbiome. A lot of these studies have asked patients not to bathe in the 24 hours just so we have enough to sample. So I'd say our studies have been um, skewed towards someone who at least didn't bathe two hours before just to get adequate sample. I would say that... Um, you know, uh, a lot of it depends on things other than your microbiome in terms of your skin health. And there's probably no one right answer for everyone. Um, I, I don't want to be too dogmatic here because I, I don't think we have an answer, but I, you know, I think daily bathing is fine, but as is, you know, less frequent bathing, um, you know, as we said, your the total burden of your skin microbiome will go down after one showers. Cause of course we are like exfoliating and getting rid um, but there's those deep niches of bacteria that will replenish and that sort of amount of bacteria on the surface will come back. So um, it would take a lot of washing to really do too much disruption to it. And I, I think it's probably more the, the other things and sort of the soap and the drying of your skin that would have more bigger impacts than kind of compositionally on the skin microbiome. Um, somebody wants to know, how does the immune tolerance work exactly? Uh, do commensal skin bacteria like staph epidermidis induce specific immune responses, but the immune system don't act on those, on those signals? Great question. Um, so we can actually study in our system sort of the individual immune cells that respond to these bacteria because we can track those um, with, with, with nice tools. And it's a little bit of both. So it's not, you know, an all you know, an immune response that is all good or all bad. So I think you're, you're getting at something that there's different flavors of the immune cells that these bacteria will stimulate. And you want the right kind of balance between those that are maybe a little bit more pro-inflammatory that as we talked about can kind of be the adjuvant and, 
fend off, you know, maybe bad pathogenic bacteria if they come into your skin and, and help keep those immune cells supercharged. But you also want those same sort of um, partner immune cells, the regulatory T cells that unless that alarm is on, are going to keep those cells in check and kind of, you know, keep you at a steady state unless, you know, it really is time to raise the roof and kind of have, you know, skin inflammation for a good reason. Um, we, I think we're studying this a lot right now in terms of like, there's been, you know, a lot of notion in the gut microbiome, for example, that things like short chain fatty acids and, um, and other molecules can really promote that tolerance in the gut. Um, uh, we are working on a paper right now that I think, you know, certain aspects of, um, we, we don't know yet if it's just Staph epi, that's the one that we look at, but can actually, um, you know, turn on programs for tolerance or at least sustain and augment them a little bit in early life immune cells to kind of make sure that tolerance is happening. I think a lot of it is just part of the natural immune program, but at least the bacteria don't get in the way, um, and the commensals at least, and can maybe even, you know, reinforce that program a bit to make sure that that tolerance happens. Um, so it's a, it's a great and nuanced question that we're super interested in. Is there any research supporting the use of probiotics for skin conditions? Yeah. Um, if we're talking about oral probiotics, um, there's been, you know, studies for that for things like eczema, um, with a little bit of mixed results, I would say. And I think that's partly maybe because of the types of bacteria that have been chosen and sort of, you know, there's been sort of lactobacillus is sort of the probiotic for a lot of things that has been used. And maybe it's, um, some of the mixed results and middling results maybe is because that's not what we should be using potentially. Um, you know, probiotics essentially are, um, you know, we're, we're talking this, uh, also about sort of the topical aspect of that. And we, I've talked about that a lot already, so maybe I won't expand, but, um, you know, that's, I think, yes. Um, but I don't have any other strong evidence for where we, we know that it's a great, a great opportunity um, for skin. And again, I think it might be which probiotics have been tested and used the the match as well for the the, the condition and the and the microbiological yeah. as well um mm -hmm. and the the last question we'll tackle tonight is can sunburn change the skin microbiome i should i should i hope it <laughs> i you know i put the fear of god in my kids for uh, for any skin you know sunburn so maybe i should be telling them it's going to change your skin microbiome but um, it changes the skin immune response a lot. You know, sunburns very, it's not just damaging, it's very inflammatory. Um, and no one has done that study, but we do know that, you know, all sorts of immune cytokines are changed after sunburn. And so I would imagine that there's probably a transient change again, not probably a permanent one, but something, um, maybe, maybe there's just less total bacteria on the skin at that point. Well, except if it's eroded, because <laughs> then there's all sorts of new, you know, skin cells. So the answer is yes, but we have not, no one has done that study that I've seen. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Really appreciate your time. And thank you to our audience for the wonderful suite of questions. Lot, lots of questions, really, really great and probing questions. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great evening. Thank you. Have a good evening. all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.